2: Very nice to be back, Cheryl. Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is extraordinary. I actually woke up this morning and I thought, oh gosh, it's midterm election day, so we're dating this podcast. And what have I got on today? Oh, I'm speaking to George Saunders. And then I thought, wow, I've hit the jackpot, right?
2: <laughs> so have I, <laughs> speaking to you. So I feel
0: really lucky that I'm speaking to you today when uh, democracy is hanging by a thread.
2: Yeah. yeah. Maybe I mean, it's better we're talking today than tomorrow, you know? Yeah,
0: maybe. Okay, let me introduce you. George is the acclaimed author of 10 books, including short stories, novels, and essay collections. His debut novel, Lincoln in the Bardo, won the 2017 Man Booker Prize. His collection, 10th of December, was a finalist for the National Book Award and won the Folio Prize. In 2000, you, can't, you can't say
2: it because you can't believe it. <laughs> it's such a shock. It's in 2000. Like, It's like, (laughs) in the world there's a talking shark, what? Uh, what, what?
0: Anyway, he's he's the world's 100 most influential people by Time magazine. Well, I mean, it is a shock, but it's deserved. I know that. He has written his first short story collection in 10 years called Liberation Day. I feel that today is the day to read Liberation Day. It explores ideas of power, ethics and justice and cuts to the very heart of what it means to live in a community with all our fellow humans. Oh, my goodness. It's a big book, even though... It's a book of short stories, right? I hope so. It is a really book, big book. It covers so many things and every story, I think, is political.
2: I, th- I think that's true because I, I can't really at this point separate the, the personal and the philosophical and the political. I, I mean, I think they've always been connected, but here especially it feels it, no sense yeah. in, in un- unthreading them.
0: Well, and also, too, you can't ignore what's around you. Some of the reviews that I've been reading about the book, I mean, I read one of the reviews, I think it was in LA Times, and he was really keen to give it a bad review, but he said he couldn't because it was ultra-readable. And that's that's something about you, George. Like when we talk about genres and what people read, You would probably fit in the category, and I hate categorising books. I feel that reading and story is for everyone. But you could say that you're a literary writer. However, you are very, very accessible to just about everyone in your
2: stories. I hope so. I I think that literary, you know, has gotten a a bad name. I mean, what we really mean, what, what stories, what Chekhov was doing, was saying here's something that speaks to everybody. Everybody who's lived on the world and and been a little thoughtful and has been hurt or had been in love, this is for you. So I think that's my aspiration is is to not have a story that can only be read by, you know, MFA people or something like that. But to try to find a way And now, but at the same time, there's also been a drift toward the banal, I think, you know, Mm -hmm. so we want we want to keep some level of difficulty only to the extent that difficulty is another way of saying emotionally truthful. You know, Mm. if you really want to express the truth of this crazy world, you might have to use some long sentences and some complex concepts and some exaggeration. And so I think uh, for me, I I want to reach everybody in their deepest place by whatever means necessary.
0: I spoke to you when we first met back, I think it was 2016 when Trump just got in and we're at the Sydney Writers Festival. Mm. Um, And it was one of my first podcasts. I'm still my very favorite. And I was worried for democracy and you told me back then that oh yeah <laughs> no you told me that we have a system and the system works and trust the system
2: mm. well I, I was younger then no I I actually I, I'm still hopeful I think you know what I think is numerically here the people who have a hopeful heart and are and believe in the system outnumber the ones that don't we just have a strange electoral process that at the moment is giving some kind of fanatics more power than they deserve. That's really the truth. And we're finding out that there's a certain segment of us that actually doesn't really either doesn't understand democracy or doesn't actually believe in it when push comes to show. And so that's a little scary, you know, because we know from history that, you know, systems don't always hold together. So
0: mm-hmm. we'll and see. So, but what are you feeling about democracy? What's its chance of survival? And do you think today is is a measure?
2: Uh, I think it actually is, because one of the things uh, that we're hearing about here is that the the Republicans are doing a lot of behind the scenes arranging, you know, to sort of get in positions where they could they could have a lot of power over future elections. And some of the people are some of these Republicans are saying, you know, this kind of crazy Kafkaesque idea that if a Democrat wins, it's impossible. Therefore, it must be overruled. There, I really recommend there's a John Oliver had a section on his show two nights ago that is just cuts right to the of this, yeah. and has a tremendous cameo at the end by by Nick Offerman. But I think it's you know these are these are forces that are irrational. Uh, they're, they've got a crazy idea of what Christianity is uh, that has nothing to do with with the New Testament that I read. Uh, so it's it's frightening, and and right. it's their ascendancy. And I think if they get power, they're not going to be timid about it. We we know that. So right. it's it's definitely a time to, you know to be alert and, and thoughtful, and um, but recognize that I, you know I, I've been saying in my talks here, we're citizens too. Those of us who consider ourselves progressives and want to protect people's rights and and not just give in to fear and conspiracy and all that, we're we're citizens too and and we're actually in the majority. So we have to not give in to despair and not not keep talking.
0: Do you know what I always wonder? I wonder what it stands for. Like, you know, what does Trump stand for? Because in his, what, four years of president, I just never really understood the political strategy there in terms of governing his country. And now when I think of all these angry, angry, and they're always angry, Republicans, Mm -hmm. I just wonder what it is they want. How does a Republican world look? Or how does Uh, a Trump world look? Or how does a MAGA world look?
2: That's the million-dollar question, and I don't think anybody's been able to answer it. I I, I went on the Trump rallies uh, back in 2016, and I got a sense, but it's complicated. I You know, I don't really know, to be honest. Trump himself, it's just staggering that he's gotten the power he has with these people because he's a rich, entitled, famous yeah. person his whole life, you know. But he he's, he's good at grievance, and I think there's a pervasive sense of grievance among certain people that, by the way, has very little to do with money. Uh, These are many middle and upper middle class and wealthy people. So I don't really understand it. I mean, I've heard it expressed as a kind of a nostalgia for an America that never really existed, that that was not diverse, that America never existed in the first place. So there's something about nostalgia. And I don't know. I mean, that's one of the strangest things is everybody over here on the left is constantly discussing this. And I don't know that we're any closer to understanding it. So this is where, for me, literature might come in handy. Just because maybe in a story you can start to sort of find in yourself some hint of whatever these feelings are, you know, and and, you know, just by having a character, and maybe that character one day has a thought that is vaguely MAGA, and you go, oh, okay, I I can sort of follow that thread, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I I don't really know.
0: I want to talk about um, the rights of people, and, and because Americans talk about that a lot. And I recently, I I ran into somebody, I was travelling in Europe and we were talking about the Australian political system because, you know, voting is compulsory here. Hmm. And this fellow said to me, this smart and left-leaning guy, he said to me, yeah, but is that democratic? And Hmm. I said, well, it kind of is because you get a a representation that is more accurate than what I think when you're actually asking people to vote. What do you Hmm. think about
2: that? I'm not sure. I mean, I noticed I read something really chilling today. There was a guy they interviewed coming out of the polls and he was a recent immigrant from Pakistan who'd been a Democrat. And he said, one, Biden is effing everything up. So I'm going to vote. I want Trump back. Okay, And then he said, so locally, I voted for so-and-so who's Republican, although I know nothing about her. Mm -hmm. You know, so I often wonder, you know, democracy, I, I, I don't know, really, but it seems to me it would have some kind of a requirement that a person be somewhat familiar with the candidates you know maybe maybe it's sort of a uh
0: that's a good point yeah
2: yeah you know, yeah i, mean, I know because we get, you yeah? can get somebody very who's done all the research and very diligent and then that vote is is crossed out by somebody who just doesn't like somebody's looks maybe that's just that's what democracy is you know it's interesting to think about there, there should you know here on the right there's a there's a lot of talk about freedom yeah and but it seems to be a kind of freedom that I, as a former Catholic schoolboy, don't recognize because their freedom was always tied up with responsibility. And freedom is what you got. Or conditional or conditional. conditional. Of course. Yeah, of course. Yeah. But freedom now, it seems to me, often just means you're stopping me from doing what I want, which that was never a thing. You know, I mean, we we drive under the speed limit you know, so, so I, I, it's a very strange, to me, it seems petulant and it seems yeah. to be possibly coming out of a sense of entitlement that is maybe generational. Maybe everybody's spoiled rotten, you know, but yes. it's, I, I really, you know, I it, actually, I feel on on thin ice on political stuff. I don't really know. I have strong political feelings, but I'm kind of like somebody's uncle. <laughs> I, don't, I don't really yeah. have any special knowledge, but for me, if I get anxious about politics, what I do, I just write a story Yeah, because I think yeah. one of the things is that, you know, In the way that we discuss politics here, and especially with social media and and polarized media, we're always talking in broad signifiers, you know, Trump supporter, MAGA guy, lefty, socialist, you know. And one thing that writing literature or fiction teaches you is that you can always take a broad label like that and chisel it down into smaller component parts by being specific. So an embittered housewife, if we write a story about her, becomes Jean you know, and, and she has a bad left leg and she has used to want to be a singer and she lives in a certain house and she speaks in a certain way. So my thing is we can get in a more workable, uh, sympathetic relation to somebody, anybody by being increasingly specific about who they are. And I always feel a little hamstrung when I just have a broad signifier, like what are these MAGA people? I just can't really reason that way, Yeah. but in a story I feel somehow calmer and, um, that ultimately, I'm being fairer and ultimately maybe even being it's a more powerful position. Yeah. I,
0: I don't want to get talk about guns or anything, but I just want to use this as an example. <laughs> and then I want to talk about love letter. But um for for us being in Australia, you know, the right to bear arms, you know, that that's often associated with that's my right, my freedom, I can carry a gun. To me, that then. Uh, jeopardizes the freedom of others.
2: Right, that's your
0: freedom to have the gun. But when you shoot somebody else, what are you doing to their freedom?
2: No, exactly. It, we talk about the freedom from the freedom to here. That's what I mean. I, the, the idea it's only the freedom to that yeah. people are interested in, uh, and it's, it's a very strange set of associations that people have. That somehow, in order to be free, they'd have to have a gun in their hand. You know, to you know. So I don't. I I don't really understand it. Yeah, I, I, just, I just don't. I, that's mm-hmm. one of the things I've been really trying to say more is I don't yeah. know, because yeah. if I don't say that, then I'll speculate and get it wrong. <laughs> so, to, I'm, so I'm confused. Talk
0: to me then, because I thought this story was highly political. Talk to me about Love Letter, the story in the book that's about a grandfather and grandson. Um, because what I got from that is that the grandson didn't feel that people like you and I were doing enough or did enough right. to save democracy.
2: Right. It's, this is set a little in the future when it's all gone south and and the democracy is no more, although it's pretending to still be in existence. Yeah. So I just imagine that the grandson had written his grandfather a kind of and it seems like a very frank, loving relationship. And he just said, yeah. what were you guys doing? You were asleep at the wheel. And then the grandfather kind of responding from my viewpoint said, well, OK, yeah, but here's how it was. You know, it wasn't as easy as you think. So that was really just my way of thinking aloud about uh, what it felt like here before the last presidential election. But one of the fictive tricks that you do is if, and I learned this from Chekhov, if you have a, a viewpoint, anything is allowed. Any viewpoint is allowed, whether you believe it or you don't believe it. But if you attribute it to a character, then it becomes part of a, an ecosystem that is a story and it's no longer your view. Even if you still hold it, you know, so in this one, I gave the grandfather my defensive rationale for why I was not doing enough or, you know, and then I just gave it to that guy. And then I just kind of let the story run out to see what if he would change his mind at all. And in my my feeling, he did. He he, by the end of it, he's slightly maybe just by hearing his voice aloud saying these things to his grandson, he's reconsidering. And by the end, he maybe is going to help the kid do something dangerous. I'm not sure about that, you know, but so I think the fictive thing is if you have a view, go ahead and put it in somebody's mouth. And then what the story will do is, is like Chekhov said, a story doesn't have to solve a problem. It just has to formulate it correctly. So if I'm a big believer in gun rights and I put that in somebody's mouth, well, then the story has to challenge that somehow the story has to arrange an armed robbery with that guy as the victim, you know, or something like yeah. that. So then you're never really having an opinion, but you're trying to bring the, the issue into the light a little more, I think, by having people discuss it and and act through it and so on. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you
1: If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
0: I've been thinking a lot about the aging author, the aging writer, right? And how- fiction- I can't hear
2: you. What's that? What's that? <laughs> Wait, I have, take, I have to go take a laxative. Okay.
0: And how yeah. <laughs> um, how the story changes, the writer's story changes. And most memorable, and Gabriel Garcia Marquez is, is one of my favourite all-time authors. Love it. Love in the Time of Cholera is just beautiful. However, he wrote a novella um, just before he died, and I've forgotten the name, but it was about an older man sleeping with a 16-year-old virgin. Hmm. I was kind of cranky about that when I read it. I just thought, what? Anyway, didn't yeah. sit with me. Well, however, what it planted the seed in terms of the perception and who we are when we write fiction at the time, and I thought about that in Love Letter too. Do you mm-hmm. think about that? Is it a a considered thought when you're writing?
2: I, I just want to use whatever I have. So to be 63 and noticing that the world is, feels different than when you were 18, I mean on the one hand I guess you could mourn it you know but but as a writer it's incredibly valuable to say oh so this is what 63 looks like this is what it feels like when your older aunts and uncles are dropping off the cliff you know or, or your friends or your uh, also just that well yeah so anything that I can get hold of that seems true to me I'm happy to use it Tell so, me how so you your get,
0: perspective has changed over the years
2: Oh I think it's just seeing the long arc you know seeing that somebody could be a certain way at 28 and then you also know them at 60 and just, oh, my goodness, that, I can't believe that that young person contained this older person, you know, I think increased fondness for stuff. I mean, it's like kind of like you realize that even you, precious you, you know, are fading. That That's beautiful. You know, I mean, it's terrifying. But to think, you know, that there's that beautiful part in um, Death of Ivan Illich where Ivan, who's dying, he can't believe it. And he thinks back to little Ivan, you know, who used to play with that leather ball. He remembers a particular toy from his childhood. So I think that's pretty, pretty sweet. You know, it gives you a perspective on the whole thing. Uh, The the, the problem from my point of view is that, you know, there's so much beautiful knowledge floating in that. And I don't quite have the chops to, to pull it off. I don't, I don't quite know how to get all that into a story yet. So there's a sense of like a lot of riches rushing in, but I don't have enough boxes to put it in. So I am i don't mind it so far. You know, knock on wood, I, I'm enjoying it. <laughs>
1: well,
0: I'm reading it. I'm feeling it in your stories. I want to tell you this story. The other day, and I, I don't want to talk about climate change either, but it is at the forefront of my mind very often, and we can't remove that from politics either. But I was in an Uber the other day in, in Sydney, Well, in Australia, we've had shocking weather patterns recently where it's rained continuously, honestly, you know, for almost a year. And so that was the conversation in the taxi. And he was a young guy. Maybe he was in his mid to late 20s. And I said, when is it ever going to stop raining in the taxi? He said to me, the problem is that the planet is getting old. Hmm. And that made me deeply sad because I felt there was an element of truth in that.
2: Yeah, especially if you consider us to be part of the planet. We're, yes, we're, we're aging. Yeah, yeah, that's 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 beautiful, actually.
0: Yeah. It is, isn't it? When,
2: yeah, I, I lived in. Uh, I did this story where I lived in a homeless camp for a week, kind of incognito. And this older guy, uh, he, I think he was Guatemalan, but we kind of became friends. And his, his mantra was, "Man, everything is always keep changing." <laughs> my, yeah. And he was talking about the camp The you know, the, the, they used to serve the soup here and my case, but that everything has always keep changing. Um, yeah. Cl- climate change is a real powerful, weird, scary yeah. thing. And I, again, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it. Yeah. it it seems it's happening. It, it's happening. It's happening. It, oh, you it's know.
0: happening. And is it that the planet gets old and the planet is finite and that's just the way it is? I don't know. I don't know the answer. Well, I have to, to I
2: have to believe that you know the planet could get younger if we got a little smarter, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and if but but the the scary thing to me is to sort of and this comes with age too, is to say there are some problems that we aren't up to solving. Now, I hope this isn't one of them. But when you see the way that politics works, especially in this country, where a good number of people are still resisting the idea that climate change is caused by human beings. So how in the world do you push that stone uphill quickly enough? Mm-hmm. And I think part of the answer is, well, maybe you don't actually, you know, maybe that's what happens, while at the same time trying not to despair about it and trying to trying to push back. But it's, it's a very strange, you know, you talk about getting old. It's very strange to see to suddenly feel that the planet and you are both getting old together. That's a strange thought because a few years ago, I think it was kind of comforting to think, well, I'm passing, you know, I'm fading, but the rest of us, this world will still be here on the day I die in great shape. Uh, Very strange to think that we might be the generation that pulled it down. I mean, that's crazy. Mm. I think
0: we had an opportunity during lockdown and COVID and we just let that pass. But anyway, yeah, I don't want to talk about that. So in writing, because I know that you're a teacher um, and you're a teacher of writing. I guess you're reading young people's writing all the time, or you're reading writing all the time. How do you think that impacts what you write? I mean, how is it that you clear your head, you come home and you decide, okay, well, I'm writing for myself tonight. What's the pattern of you writing and how do you separate the two?
2: That's a great question. I I realized a long time ago that I have a kind of a a limited bandwidth for reading other people's stuff, even good stuff. So Mm. I, I just don't read a bunch of outside work. I just read my students' work, and I've kind of gradually gotten to where I'm only teaching in the fall, so I don't have to read that much, actually. But I also got pretty good at putting up little mental barriers. So I used to teach uh, Wednesday, Thursday, and then Thursday night, the barrier would go up, and I would just take a deep breath, and then my mind would be ready to write, and then write over the weekend and then stop on Tuesday. But it was kind of just a kind of a game I played with my mind to say, now I'm reading student work, now I'm an artist. And, you know, it's funny, you can kind of, it's one of the things I talk to my students about is you can actually do a, a lot of self-gaming, I call it. You know, you can give yourself permission to clean your mind. You know, you can give yourself permission to lovingly edit student work without resenting it. So yeah, I think it's okay. I i, I was a working class person and i the first book I wrote, I wrote at work entirely. So that was always putting up within a five-minute span saying, I'm working on a technical report. I give myself permission to write a story. Now I'm back to the technical report. And, uh, mm. So, yeah.
0: That's a hard gig. I mean, a lot of writers will say that they can't do that.
2: I and I think thought, a lot can't. I, You know, one thing yeah. I tell my students is you have to respect your metabolism. Some people need eight hours of quiet and you have to get that. I, I was just built so I didn't need it, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: When you're thinking of story, and I'd imagine, you know, as we said, you're thinking about that in the times that you are, are you thinking, oh, okay, this is going to be a novel at the outset? I mean, what is it that you plan when you start writing you do you think in your head okay well this is going to be short stories or i think that this is going to be a fiction novel i mean how does that is that a considered thought
2: it's almost always i just assume it's a story and it it always happened except that one time you know (laughs) Um, i know it's a story
0: but is it a big story is it a long Mm -hmm. story or is it a short story and do you think about that
2: has to do with with like the um i think the story has a certain dna that and it will reveal itself to you you know it'll tell you how long it wants to be so my my default setting is keep it short keep it short keep it short and i only let it expand when it insists uh because i'm a big i'm a big fan of efficiency in the story i think you wind up the toy and let it go under the couch as soon as possible so my default is you know, i'm going to start and i'm going to probably write a little long and then i'm going to edit it back and then write long and edit back but i'm always trying to like I imagine myself trying to stuff a sweater into a box, you know, <laughs> and then at yeah. some point you start cutting parts off the sweater so it will fit. Now, that's the default, and if it if it insists on being longer, then I'm really happy. But they they usually don't.
0: Yeah, <clears> that <they're, throat> they've got a beginning and an end. I spoke to um an author recently <clears throat> and uh, who had written many many fiction novels, and he said to me, I think he was up to twenty five or twenty six, I can't remember, <sighs> and and he said to me, yeah, he said to me, it never gets easier. That every time he sits down to write a book, it's the same
2: angst as he had with book one. Yeah, I'm. I'm not a real angsty writer. I I, mostly it's a a version of fun for me. It's not running around in a rainstorm fun, but it. But it's (laughs) it's fun, you know. I I, if I hit a a block, I kind of. Think, oh, that's interesting. The story's, you know, the story's trying to tell me something, and so I don't really. I mostly just feel eager, eager to get back to it, honestly, you know. And then a little concerned, you know. I think at this age, I mean, you do kind of, uh, you want to be careful not to just fall into a pattern of doing what you've done before, and that's the biggest challenge, you know. But what a yeah. blessing, because then it, that's true in all, in all things at this age, you know. You somehow at sixty three, you think you should know some shit, and that that's a problem <laughs> because then you might decide that yeah. you do and, and lock down you know so th- so that I think art is a really great way to um kind of ritualize opening your mind up every day and not yeah. not clinging to what you've done in the past or who you think you are but just finding out
0: you know, when I was younger and you are probably the same or maybe not as naive, I don't know, maybe, you know, like 10, 12, and I'd look at my parents or I'd look at other adults around me and I'd say, I can't wait to get to an age where I know everything, where I know it. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean knowledge. I mean, know everything about yourself, know everything. You know, at 50, you know, you must have a certain wisdom that you don't have Mm at uh, 10 or 13. And then when I got to 50, I realized that was completely untrue.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's I mean, it can be a burden, I think, because, you know, when I I turned 40, I remember walking up to campus to teach. I just started teaching at like 38 or 39 and I was walking a little nervous, you know, kind of performance anxiety about teaching these brilliant students. And and I had some thought pattern. I don't remember what it was even, but I recognized it from from many other nervous occasions, the same exact five or six beat uh, mental progression. And I thought, oh, my God, I'm like a robot. You know, I've been having that thought my whole life. And then I thought, wow, will I still be having that thought at 80? Yeah. I thought, well, probably, you know, I mean, in the sense that we're kind of machines. So that was actually a good motivation to start meditating, because if those thoughts are habitual, maybe you can you know, loosen up the connection yeah. with them. So I think as you get older, there is, there's a tendency to cling to the side of the pool, I think, to, to feel like you're an authority because it's embarrassing if you're not kind of, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. but I think that's where the negative aspects of aging come from is the, just the anxiety of being you know, when you're a kid, every day you have some crazy new experience that you that you never had before. And That's at right. this age, it's a little harder to find them. But art is a good, every story is a new experience I haven't had before. If if you approach it in the right way, you know.
0: Do you think with um with writing? Um, and I had this thought th- uh, recently because I was speaking with Tom Keneally, who I don't know if you know him, but is a.
2: <laughs> yeah, he's great. I don't know him personally, but I he's he's a legend.
0: Legend, absolute legend yeah. in his writing, and I feel that. Tom, uh, I don't know how old he is, but 88 or 85 and he's out and about and he came to my office the other day. And I wondered with his writing style, does he lock himself up in a room and write? And how is it that a writer gets the story? And there is different ways of I've spoken to so many authors that there's different ways that that happens, but I was thinking for me it would have to be a lived experience, mm-hmm. right? So you have yeah. to be out and about. like It's kind of like a conflict, isn't it, because you've got to lock yourself up to, to, to write the words, yeah. but you've got to be out there to have the experience at any age I, really.
2: I, yeah, I think I have a feeling it might be a different mix for different people because I, I feel like I, what I want to do is live enough so that my Vision of things keeps changing and growing. You know, I don't really use actual experience much, I don't think, except maybe in a secondhand way. But but if I um, don't get out in the world, then I settle into my fixed beliefs. And that's a boring place to write from. So, I so what I what I've been doing is going out and doing these nonfiction pieces every now and then to the Trump rallies or the homeless camp and
0: yeah, and uh, teaching and, and that, I guess
2: teaching teaching also yeah yeah and also I think just we you know wandering around like I I had to clean out our house in New York we sold a the house there and it was really fun for three weeks just to be the guy cleaning out his house you know get, renting a truck getting a dumpster in there dealing with movers and uh, going into town late at night to have some pizza and roaming around so just I think to I feel like the basic responsibility is to know something about what your time feels like. But then so much of it, in my case, comes from, well, it comes in, from the internal experience of life, but also from the form. You know, the, the, I mean, really what I feel I'm trying to keep fresh mostly is the short story form as I'm doing it. So uh, having written a certain number of stories, now you want to write a new kind of story. Mostly that has to do with the form itself. You know, how, mm-hmm. so in this book, there's a story called Sparrow that really felt new to me. I felt like something I hadn't done before. And it wasn't really because I had any big insights about life, but it's because I came to understand something new about the story form as I was writing it. So that's what I mean. You know, if you, uh, I, I think I could be pretty reclusive, and still keep my mind fresh if I was really working on stories, yeah.
0: How, how do you know as a writer that when, I often wonder about this, when filmmakers talk about this, when they know that everything's full and in place and this is going to be good. The actors are good, the storylines are good, the editing's great, <laughs> and they bring that all together and, you know, they have a hunch that this is going to be it. Do you have that as a writer?
2: Sure, yeah. I I, th- I mean, the great thing about writing is you can check every day. You know, you yeah. don't need a you don't need a film crew, you don't need any money, you just... Uh, the only thing you have to do is somehow be able to mimic a first time reader in your own mind. You pick up the story that you've been working on for six months, but something internal happens and you say, OK, let's pretend that I haven't, I haven't read this ever before. I just find it on the seat of a bus, you know, and I pick it up. What, is, what does it do to me? And then you start reading. And now that's very difficult to attain that state. But that might be the, the one big skill of, of a writer. So and then you can just say, oh, yeah, this is really working for me or page eight gets a little crummy. I better do something there. So it's really lovely because as long as you have the patience to, you know, to go back to it again and again until you're really satisfied, then all that control resides with you. You know, you don't, there actually isn't much, I mean, there's luck along the way. At every point you can look at it and decide whether you want to go out in the world with it or not. So that's kind of a delicious feeling, you know, when it's almost there, you're like, huh, I think I could get another 3% out of that if I wait another month, you know, or something. But you do kind of know. I, I You know, from that read, uh, really, it's just a matter of reading along and going, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, huh, nice, nice, yeah. nice. Oh, wow, huh, yeah. And then if you can get to the end of the story feeling that way, then you kind of trusted a imaginary reader would feel the same way, something okay. like that. Yeah.
0: So for all those listeners, this is a masterclass in writing. <laughs> no, I don't know. <laughs> by, George, <laughs> by George Saunders. Now, listen, I've got to let you go, but just one last question. What will the world look like? If things don't go as planned today, I don't know. Oh, I don't know. Do we know it what look, that looks like?
2: No, I don't think we do. That's the that's the the horror and the beauty of it. We really don't know. You know, I mean, if somebody would have asked me when I wrote that piece love letter, there's a you know, it's like a sci fi thing. So there's a series of, of statements saying what this new world is like. One thing I didn't even think of putting in there was overturning Roe versus Wade, mm. but there it is. You know. But that's you know that's the challenge of the imagination. C- can we imagine what the world will look like in a year? We actually can't. We really can't. You know, mm. so that's thrilling and frightening. And uh, yeah, I don't. I don't think we know. <laughs> that's the simple truth.
0: George Saunders, thank you so much for your time. I can't tell you how honored I feel to be speaking with you all the time, any time, but particularly on this day.
2: Thank you, Cheryl. I love. I love these. This uh, to the look at your mind. It's really a wonderful wonderful mind and i appreciate it
0: if you'd like more information about better reading follow
1: us on facebook or visit betterreading.com.au this podcast is proudly sponsored by belinda audio belinda audio books are available on cd and mp3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere or you can download from audible google play or the ibook store We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of eBooks and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow and be inspired through the power of storytelling. and 365-day returns.
0: If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.